Thank you, Stacy and Dad and Roger Dale. Give me a moment while I adjust to windy conditions here at the pulpit. We'll take them. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. Verse number 26. I can only say I will try not to be too long. You know how that goes. We're continuing to work our way through John 1. And you will remember that I told you that that John's purpose here is very simple. His, His purpose in writing this gospel is to present the evidence, the testimony, the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And also, in believing that, you may have the eternal life that comes with that faith. That comes with believing that. In the first 18 verses, John makes a very, as we've seen, makes a very clear declaration concerning the deity. Remember that word deity means the Godhood of Jesus. That that Jesus is the God-man. That He is truly God and He is truly man. No other man has ever existed or will ever exist that has that distinction. Jesus, the most important man in human history. You want to debate me on that, you will lose. He is the God-man. And that is what He claimed for Himself in Scripture. Also, verse 15, John the Apostle introduces us to John the Baptist. I'm always glad he's John the Baptist. His first witness to the deity of Christ. And then we started into this last time. Look in verse 19 with me. Starts out by saying, This is the testimony of John. Now, why is this so important? That John the Apostle draws from John the Baptist this initial testimony in his gospel? Well, there are several reasons. Number one, because John was a prophet. In fact, he was the only prophet in Israel at the time. Remember, we said there hadn't been a prophet in over 400 years in the land of Israel at this time. And as we saw last time, it was was very clear that everybody at that time understood John the Baptist to be a prophet. Later in John 5, it says, for a while, everyone was willing to rejoice in his light. John was the man during his ministry. So first of all, it has to be understood that if you are going to have a human testimony given to the Messiah, 
it, it has to come from the most credible source. And the most believable, credible preacher and witness to the person of Jesus Christ would be the one who was the most reliable, who was called by God, as we saw, to be a prophet, and that was John the Baptist. And beyond that, John the Baptist was not just an ordinary man. Remember, he came from a priestly family. His father was highly respected as a priest. That alone in the Jewish community gave him extra credibility. Remember his birth? His birth was miraculous because his parents had been barren for a long time and in their most senior years, Elizabeth gave birth to this prophet of God. Not only that, but his birth was also a prophesied event by an angel, remember the story, who showed up to Zacharias while he was in the process of doing his priestly sacrificial work. And the angel told Zacharias that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Nobody else in the Bible has that distinction. That he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn many of the hearts of the people back to God and prepare them in the nation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Another component that makes John so unique is that he lived his whole life completely apart from the religious system of Israel. All of his adult life, he lived like a hermit. He lived out in the wilderness, the desert. He ate whatever he could scrounge for. And he wore what was ever available. That camel hair. Imagine wearing some camel hair right now outside. No air conditioner, living somewhere outside. And not only that, but John the Baptist lived his whole life completely alien to the religious system of Judaism. So much so that in the first glimpse that we have of the leaders of the religious establishment of Israel coming to him, you know what the first thing is he says when they come down to see him? You brood of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's the first thing he says to them. My kind of guy. So he's not only foreign to the now, as we know, apostate system of Judaism. He is is anti-apostate Judaism. He's not only separate from them, he speaks prophetically against them. And he warns them. He warns them of judgment to come. This is the man that John the Apostle draws on for the initial testimony and witness for Messiah in his gospel. And the point here is, if you're going to pick somebody to start that testimony, 
about who the Messiah is, pick the most credible person. And clearly, John the Apostle did so. And remember, like I said, John John is not concerned about where John the Baptist lives and what he wears and what he eats. The other Gospels do a fine job of that. John the Apostle is only concerned about his testimony. Now, you need to understand this. I want you to think about this. Kind of put yourself back historically at this time in first century Israel. The nation of Israel had acknowledged John the Baptist in general overall as a spokesman for God. And, and so clearly he is the right man for the job in the gospel testimony. Think about it. That has been written down for all the saints of all the ages throughout all of church history. And we're looking at it even today in 2023. Now remember also, I told you last time that verses 19 to 37, these verses take place over the course of three particular days. That's almost unheard of in Scripture. Really, the only other time is during the Passion Week that we have that. And in summary, on on day one, speaking of the Messiah on that first day, John basically says, He's here. And then on day two, He says, look at him. And then as we're going to see on day three, he's going to say, follow him. So those are kind of going to be the the points of our outline. And also those three messages are given to three different groups. On day one, it's a hostile delegation sent from the Sanhedrin. On day two, it's that mass of people that are out there to hear John the Baptist preach. And then on day three, it's going to be some of John's own apostles. So let's look into day one. And we already started into day one last time. And I'll just take us through a quick review to get us back to where we left off. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, just to get our bearings, remember, the Sanhedrin was a council of 70 Jewish leaders plus the high priest, so 70 plus run, and they ran the whole system of Judaism. They were the leaders. They were the elite. That council of the Sanhedrin was made up of, on one side, the group called the Sadducees. They were the more political side. And then on the other side of the Sanhedrin, you had the Pharisees. They were the fundamentalists. They were much more devoted to the law. Uh, They they taught the law and they were much more religious and less uh, political. Remember that John the Apostle uses that expression, the Jews, that you see here in verse 19. In every single case in his gospel, that identifies the religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus and that would represent the Sanhedrin. If you look down in verse 24, 
It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So it seems that what that means is the Pharisees were the leading questioners out of the whole group of the Sanhedrin. And remember, the Pharisees didn't have the guts to come down there to the Jordan Valley themselves. So they sent the lower tier priest and their helpers, the Levites. And so it's that group coming, representing the Pharisees that come down to John the Baptist and ask some questions. First, at the end of verse 19, look there, they asked John, who are you? And what is implied is, of course, are you the Messiah? Because look how John answers in verse 20. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And remember that phrase in the Greek is a very strong denial. He's actually outraged that they would even have the audacity to ask him such a question. And then in verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Remember last time we saw the prophecy in Malachi that promises that Elijah would come before the the coming of Messiah and the great and terrible day of the Lord. And John says, no, I am not. I remember, but that's because he wasn't. He wasn't reincarnated Elijah. What did the angel tell his father, Zacharias? He will come in what? The spirit and power of Elijah. And then that Elijah that comes right before the second coming is worked out in your view of eschatology. We can talk about that after church. Then next in verse 21, are you the prophet? Well, who is that talking about? Well, that refers back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses talked about a prophet who would one day come like him, speaking the words of the Lord, and that is referring to the Messiah. And they all knew that. And so next in verse 21, it says, he answered, no. And the question behind these questions is, why in the world do you think that you have the authority to be baptizing all these masses of people? What gives you the right to do this out here in the Jordan River Valley? The issues were all about power and authority with them. Think about John. Just put yourself back at this time. No religious training. No religious credentials at all. He had not sat under the feet of Gamaliel as Paul did. And yet, He had these people coming out into the wilderness to hear him preach by the tens of thousands. No Jewish religious leader ever had anything like that happening in their ministry. And he's baptizing them for heaven's sake. So you can understand. They had to get to the bottom of just what in the world is going on out here in this wilderness. Verse 22. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. 
What do you say about yourself? And after saying, I am not, I am not, I am not, he finally says, I am, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And remember, we said that the greatest strength of John the Baptist was his humility. In verse 15, he said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. The great phrase for he existed before me. He existed in eternity past when no one else existed. Same attitude in verse 27. He who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That was the job of the lowest slave during those years. And here in verse 23, he's making clear. I am just a voice. That's all. Notice that John wants no titles. Again, I said this last week, no honors, no comforts, no followers. What John the Baptist, all that John the Baptist wants to do is to point people to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what he continues to do until he gets his head cut off and he's executed. Here in verse 23, he's quoting from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And he's saying loud and clear, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. He's saying, my job is to be a voice to cry out to you. Make your heart a ready path for the arrival of the king in your heart the king is coming get your heart right for his arrival the king is on his way and i'm telling you to get ready john is a true preacher in every sense of the word a true believer and it's so interesting he's just so well aware that he's only a voice, that he's telling people, make your path straight, get your house in order. Because the king is coming. Just think for a moment how he must have been daily amazed by the fact that he was actually the living fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He must have thought about that every morning when he got up. I can't believe this. I don't deserve this. How wild is this that I am the fulfillment of that prophecy chosen by God to be the herald of heaven's king come to earth. But how humble he was about it. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and like I said that must mean that the Pharisees were back in their little smoke-filled room coming up with the questioning amongst the total group of the Sanhedrin. And then verse 25, and they get around now to what motivated the whole thing. They asked Him and said to Him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ nor Elijah 
nor the prophet. Where did you get this authority? Where did you get the right to do this? Is what they're asking. Boy, and John gets straight to it with his answer like a man. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In other words, why are you focused on me? I baptize in water. What's the big deal? I'm just putting people in the water. That's just an external symbol of an inward reality. Why are you so caught up with me? But John did have that authority. Look at verse 33. He says, He who sent me to baptize in water said to me. That's God. He who sent me to baptize. He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes. Notice in the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. And remember, that's the recollection of Him being at the baptism of Jesus. That's already happened. He did have divine authority. He did what He did because of God telling Him to do it. But He, but he doesn't tell them that right at that moment. John, John's trying to get them to see, don't be concerned about me. There's one you need to look at who is already among you. He is the one you need to be looking at. Again, John is just doing what he always does. He's just trying to turn everybody's attention to Christ when he says, look in verse 26, but among you stands the one stands one whom you do not know. He's saying he's here. That's John's First message. You don't know him, but he's the one you need to know. He's going to tell them later he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's the one who deals with your heart. He's the Messiah. He's here. Not literally that day when this is happening, but he's in the land. He's arrived. He's on the scene. In fact, remember I told you at that very moment that he is saying this, Jesus is walking to where John is and he will arrive the next day. Now, at this point, we need to get our chronology straight or this can get kind of confusing. Where we are here in our text is that it has actually been 40 plus days ago that, that John actually baptized Jesus. That's where John the Apostle picks this up. After the baptism, as you know, Jesus was carried up by the Spirit up into the wilderness for 40 days to, of the temptation. Now all of that is over, and Jesus is on his way back to John. And what John is saying here, again in verse 26, is that he, he's here. He's here right now. He, he, he's not on the spot immediately. But he has been identified. 
I have identified him publicly. So on day one, you have John's first testimony to this group sent from the Jewish religious leaders. And by the way, that message would have immediately gone back to Jerusalem and would have spread like wildfire amongst all the Jewish religious leaders. The claim is from down at the Jordan River that the Messiah is here. Can you imagine what that caused back in Jerusalem? And you have to understand that what that does is leave the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem with no excuse. Like, oh, we are surprised that Jesus has shown up and claimed to be Messiah. Nope. I want you to understand that they were put on notice before Jesus ever even began his ministry officially that Messiah has arrived. And it happened right here with John the Baptist. And from the very outset of that report on that day, going back to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, their hostility is going to continue and increase all the way to the cross where they finally execute and murder Jesus unjustly. Now let's look at day two. Verse 28 says, These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And you remember I told you this is not Bethany right next to Jerusalem. This was another Bethany way out in the country near the region of Galilee. And we know that we've arrived at day two because look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is day two and this is group two. All the people that are gathered out there around him. And this is the message. Look at him. Behold. Message one, he's here. Message two, look at him. He is the Lamb of God. Day one was a private delegation. Day two is a public proclamation. Just imagine as John sees Jesus coming to him this day. I wish we had the audio. Right? I mean, he had to shout. In my mind, I'll take a little preacher license. I don't know. We don't have the audio. We have the the words, but... I can only imagine as Jesus walked up through that crowd, Behold the Lamb of God! That's what I imagine. Look at Him. There He is. Take Him in. Right? Take in the reality of who this is right here standing amongst us. This is the Lamb of God. Now you know from our previous studies... That's not what they expected to hear. As soon as they heard that, you know, Joseph had to look at his buddy and say, why would Messiah be a lamb? A lamb? A lamb is weak. A lamb is helpless. Lambs are stupid. Why would the Messiah... 
be a, a lamb. A, a, a lamb is helpless. A, a lamb is totally dependent. What do you mean, John? That Messiah is a lamb. Why are you not standing on this riverbank saying, Behold your king! What, what? Behold your majesty! Behold the anointed one! Behold the exalted one! A lamb? In Judaism, lambs existed for one primary purpose, to be sacrificed. Go back to Exodus, all the way back to the first Passover, and then constantly since then in Judaism, lambs were weak, helpless, sacrifices constantly used for that reason all throughout the history of Israel. Now you need to know that all of them knew Isaiah 53. He was a lamb, led as a lamb to the slaughter, the one who was wounded for our transgressions and, and bruised for our iniquities. Yeah, they knew those verses. But folks, you've got to understand they didn't put it together. They didn't know how it fit. You want to know the ugly reason why? Because they never saw themselves as a people in that kind of need for a Messiah lamb. They were sons of Abraham by birth. They followed the law. That combined with the offering of the animals, that was enough for them to be right with God. But those animals, the Bible says, could never take away sin. They could only point to the one sacrifice that alone could take away sin, and that is the Lamb of God alone. And because they didn't recognize their own sinfulness, and they didn't recognize that they were under judgment, and that they did need a very particular sacrifice, and that their Messiah was to be their sacrifice, that Isaiah 53 is talking about, they had no concept that the Messiah would indeed be a lamb. Every Jewish family chose its lamb every year. Every father chose a lamb. This is the lamb that God chose. He came to be wounded for our transgressions, as Isaiah said. He became sin for us, the one who knew no sin. He offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The Jews wanted a king. They got a lamb. They wanted a monarch. They got a substitute. They wanted an exalted Messiah. What they got was a humiliated sacrifice. They didn't understand that they could never have a king unless they had a lamb. And that happens in two comings. There could never be a coming in glory to rule and to reign until there was first a coming in humiliation to die. Now notice the phrase in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very simply, what that means is that for the whole world, there's only one who can take away sin. 
And that's this one who will die as the sacrificial lamb God accepts. Oh, our, our world, our nation can't handle the fact that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And there is no other Savior. And there never will be. And then in verse 30, John says again what he said back in verses 15 and 27. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. And again, what he is saying is get your attention off of me. I'm telling you, he was born into the world after me, yet he existed before me. Get to looking at him. Get your eyes set on the one who is of such a higher rank than I am. And then next we get down into the human element of this situation, which we'll run into again later. Notice verse 31. John says, I did not recognize him. Isn't that interesting? He didn't recognize him at first. Now think about that. How is that the case? Weren't Elizabeth, his mother, and Mary related? They were. Did they talk? Well, for sure. Elizabeth knew of the miracle of the virgin birth. They were together. Remember when both of them were pregnant? Don't you think those ladies told their sons that they were who they were? And So wouldn't John... Know who who Jesus was. Like I know who my cousins are. I mean, certainly it was known in the family. But here's where the human element comes into play. I want you to think about this. Here you have Jesus living his life day by day by day after day in Nazareth in complete obscurity. 30 years that saw working in the carpenter shop. 30 years normal, average, working man days. Don't you think that would raise some pretty serious questions in the mind of John the Baptist? 30 years have gone by and nothing has happened and he's the son of God? He's the Messiah? And yet day after day and year after year, there's nothing even remotely messianic happening. Just a lot of carpentry going on. John was a prophet, yes, but he was also just a regular man like us. It would be easy in this situation for some doubt to come in, don't you think? And don't you know, even later in the ministry of John the Baptist, after it became very clear who Jesus was, John began to doubt again. You remember that? John actually began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah because even after Jesus started his ministry, he didn't do anything they were expecting him to do, including John the Baptist. He didn't conquer anything. He didn't take over anything. He didn't do nothing to the Romans. And John even sent, you remember the passage, some of the disciples to see, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus said, go tell John of the works that I have done. So, don't be too hard on John. He's human. He's got questions. 
It's not playing out how he thought it was going to play out, just like all the rest of them. And, and really what John is saying here in verse 31 is that he didn't recognize Jesus in the fullest, deepest sense. Not that he didn't know who he was. Then he says this in verse 31. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So up to that point, John is saying, yeah, I knew him, but there was no way for me to be certain that this was the Messiah, which, by the way, is a clear distinction that Jesus's humanity was a real humanity, which is so important. There was nothing about seeing the man Jesus during his earthly life that would tell you he was a heavenly Person, I hate to disappoint some of you. Jesus didn't walk around with a glowing circle around his head. Okay? Not true. So John the Baptist, I didn't recognize him, verse 31, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water, verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him, verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water, that he is God, said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And you remember that scene. The Spirit comes down and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, for sure, John at that moment knows. But later, like I said, Doubts still arise because he still doesn't see those evidences. But at this point here where we are, John is making it clear. I didn't recognize him as the Messiah until the Father told me he's the one that the Spirit descends upon. And then at that point, we go to verse 34. Look at it. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Boom. There it is. So on day two, John says to the crowd, look at him. The Lamb of God who is the Son of God. This is the finest, most believable, credible, trustworthy voice in Israel affirming that Jesus is the God-man. And now lastly, verse 35 takes us to day three. I love this day three and you're fixing to find out why. Again, the next day. That's how we know this is three days. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said again, Behold the Lamb of God. And I think... That right here at this point, John is just awestruck. I think he's just overwhelmed that he is actually in the presence of the Christ. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So this is day three. This is group three. These are two disciples right here of John the Baptist. John had followers. And here are two of them. And according to down in verse 40, one of them is Andrew. 
So one of the two heard John and followed Jesus is Andrew. Who is the other one? Well, as I told you, the writer of this Gospel of John is always very reluctant to name one of them. Who is it? It's himself. So Andrew and John started out as followers of John the Baptist getting ready for Messiah. And John didn't want any disciples. He's standing with him, sees Jesus and tells them, look over here. Now look at me. Behold, the Lamb of God is standing right here in front of your face. What are you doing here with me? Get gone. And John had done his job. He's here. Look at him. Follow him. And never stop following him. Folks, that's the essence of saving faith. You understand that he came. You understand from Scripture who He is. And you surrender and commit your life to following Him just like Andrew and John did. Just how countless numbers have throughout church history. And I ask you today, have you done that? Is that why you're here today? Is that why you come to church every Sunday? My prayer for you, I certainly hope that is why. It literally is the most important issue in the human experience. No matter what the world says, there really is nothing more important than this because it is eternity. Your eternity. My eternity that hangs in the balance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tremendous testimony of John the Baptist. What a preacher. What a herald. What a humble example John the Baptist is. We thank you for his testimony, the most important testimony in the universe, always has been, always will be. And we pray that today with our worship here at your church, over which you are Lord, that you have received maximum glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.